unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grantham Asha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. More than 15 years ago, India's parliament passed a sweeping piece of legislation known as the Right to Information Act, a new law that transforms the way ordinary citizens access the inner workings of government, offering them an unprecedented glimpse into how policy is made, how funds are allocated, and how interests are served. A new book by the political scientist Himanshu Jha, Capturing Institutional Change, The Case of the Right to Information Act, asks a seemingly simple question. Why would a state that is so deeply penetrated by vested interests initiate a far-reaching process of reform that would expose the very special interests who have benefited from opacity in the first place? To explain this puzzle and much, much more, Himanshu joins me on the phone from Heidelberg, Germany. Himanshu, good to talk to you. Uh, Thanks, Milan. Uh, Pleasure to be here. So... I want to ask you a little bit about why you decided to write this book. You mentioned at the very outset in the preface that the seeds of this research were really sown during your time working in the kind of development field prior to going to graduate school, you know, where you were on the ground in India. Tell us a bit about what you were doing during this period and what you saw there that kind of prompted you to want to go deeper, to explore the changing norms around transparency in government. Um, that's that's an interesting question, Milan. Um, you know, yes, it. Um, you know, I can trace it back to the time when I was working for the development sector in India, um, and it kind of coincided. This this idea of transparency and accountability coincided with my work. Um, at that time, I was working for uh, this uh, advocacy think tank called Social Watch, where we would um, monitor uh, the performance of institutions of governance, uh, parliament, judiciary. Uh, institutions of local governance and the executive. Um, and every year we would take out this report, which was called Social Watch Report. Um, and I remember um, that one of the appraisals of parliament that we did uh, way back in 2007 or eight or 2006, I don't remember the exact time, um, the headlines in Hindustan Times was uh, the dirt in Indian parliament. And we got a uh, prompt phone call from then then the speaker of Lok Sabha, uh, Somnath Chatterjee, uh, who was very upset about this headline. Um, and so these were the, these were the kinds of things that we were doing, um, and it kind of coincided with the phase when whole lot of uh, rights based uh, legislations were being enacted uh, at the central level. Um, so you had Mahatma Gandhi Rural Employment Guarantee Act, uh, you had Right to Information Act. Um, Later on, you had Right to Education Act as well. And, um, and so essentially, the whole logic was that something which was recommended in the directive principles of state policy uh, was interpreted as a fundamental right. And so there was a marriage between the two. And, um, and as an activist, as somebody who was working for an advocacy think tank, um, these things kind of excited me. Uh, but RTI was like the father of all rights, uh, as in India, said, you know, BAP of all rights. Um, so to speak, uh, because it kind of talked to this whole system of uh, seeking accountability from the state at many levels. And there were like crossovers uh, between these different rights. Uh, so right to information was a right uh, promulgated during the same period. And yet it was very different because there was no policy precursor to it. In fact, it was illegal uh, for citizens to uh, you know, uh, receive 
information from the state and the, all the state information was considered uh, secret. Um, and so, you know, I also remember the time when I actually uh, did this workshop where we listened to fascinating experiences of how people have used right to information. Uh, this workshop was in partnership of uh, partnership with uh, UNDP, and uh, um, you know there was this organization called Kabir, which was run by, believe it or not, uh, the dip, now the deputy chief minister of uh, Delhi, uh, Manish Sodia. Um, so we did this workshop, and that kind of fascinated me. Uh, this whole story, and they, you know, there were dominant narratives which were somewhat settled about how it came about that there was a social movement in Rajasthan spearheaded by Aruna Roy, uh, MKSS, Nikhil Day, uh, became a national campaign known as National uh, Campaign for People's Right to Information. Uh, but, you know, even then there were like sporadic, uh, scattered kind of commonsensical uh, knowledge about, you know, probably this is just not the entire, entire story. I mean, there's more to that story than just this. And so that kind of brought me back to the academic drawing board uh, to connect the dots. So let me back up for a second, because I'm sure, you know, many of our listeners, most of our listeners are probably familiar with the rough outlines of the 2005 Right to Information Act. It was, as you mentioned, a landmark piece of legislation. It was very much one of the flagship accomplishments of the previous Congress-led UPA government that was in power from 2004 to 2014. But for the benefit of those who don't know about it or who only have kind of encountered it in passing, can you kind of describe for us what the law does in kind of the big picture? And why is it such a landmark piece of legislation? Why, why, why was it such a rupture from the past? Um, Millen, as you know, uh, you know, right to information basically, essentially, at the very basic level, provides a legal regime uh, to its citizens to access information from within the state, uh, from the public authorities. Uh, but, you know, as we go studying the law, uh, you know, as, as, as it kind of pans out for the citizens, there is so much more that you can interpret about the law. So, for instance, uh, you know, information is very clearly defined in the law, what, what, what entails uh, information. And it essentially covers all, uh, all, all records, any record which uh, the public authorities holds in, in terms of emails, memos, advices, press releases, circulars, you name it. And it falls under the ambit of uh, right to information. Uh, it also covers all federal units. So it covers the central departments and central ministries. It covers the state departments and the state ministries. And it also covers uh, the Mukhiya's office right at the level of the village, uh, the, the, the block. Um, so another important thing about this, this right is that it also gives you right to kind of inspect the work, the documents. Uh, you can also take notes, take photocopies. Uh, you can, you know, if there's a road being built, in your neighborhood, you can also take the samples of the material which they are using, certified samples of the material which is being used uh, to to build that road. Um, it gives you a, gives citizens a kind of a system of appeal. You can actually appeal if the information is refused. There's a stipulated time frame within which you can actually get the information. Uh, 
there's also, uh, you know, I, I don't think many laws in the world have, have this. There's also a system of penalties being imposed on airing officials. Of course, it's a different story that how much of that penalty is actually imposed, uh, and we will get to it. Um, but there is also a nitty-gritty about this law, which is very interesting. So, for instance, uh, the Section 18 of this law actually provides for uh, initiating inquiries. So a state information commission commissioner or a, a commissioner sitting at the central information commission can actually, uh, on the basis of an uh, what re, what is revealed through RTI, can actually direct the officials to initiate inquiries. And um, you know, during my fieldwork in Bihar, I actually saw it happening uh, that um, you know uh, uh, RTI revealed some anomalies in the implementation of. Uh, the MGNR, MGNREGS, which is the Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme. And, and I should just mention, this is the biggest workfare program in the world. It guarantees rural laborers 100 days of paid labor throughout the country. Thank you, Milan. And so, you know, as the anomalies were revealed at the district level, um, you know, the state information commissioner uh, saw it as a pattern, and he actually directed the district magistrates to initiate these inquiries. So, you know, RTI presents a, a kind of a contrasting before and after picture. Uh, you know, so earlier the legal regime was uh, governed by uh, the norm of secrecy, uh, you know, uh, facilitated by laws such as Official Secrets Act, um, uh, the Sections 1, 2, 3 of the Indian Evidence Act, uh, civil services conduct rules of the 1964 uh, or the manual of office procedures of the government of India, uh, which actually uh, said that receiving and giving out information with the public authorities is a legal offense. And RTI completely changed it. And the change is absolutely complete because the section 22 of RTI says that, you know, in case of a conflict, it is the right to, in, in case of a conflict with other laws, it is right to information which holds supreme. Uh, and yet, right to information is different from other right, rights-based legislations. Could I just intervene on this question? Because, you know, if you go back to 1947, in the immediate post-independence period, you know, you note in the book that government India was shrouded in a kind of veil of secrecy, and it was very much governed by the Official Secrets Act, or OSA, which is a kind of British colonial re relic. You know, we often ask ourselves whether it's the civil services, whether it's the police, why independent India continued on with this British colonial relic, even though now, you know, you, you weren't governing subjects, you were governing citizens. Um, was there a debate about whether or not um, there should have been a clean break just from the outset? Um, in, in a sense, you know, one could ask, why did it take you know, 60 years for this to happen. Yes, Milan, um, surely there was a debate. And this is this is the kind of political debate that I've tried, tried to capture in this book, uh, where there were kind of pulls and pressures. Uh, there was a churning of ideas which was happening within the state. But coming back to uh, the OSA, which is the Official Secrets Act, um, you know, it has to be kind of understood in a broad political context. Surely, Britishers would have it as imperialist power. They need to kind of run their governance in utmost secrecy. Um, so surely, Britishers would have it. Uh, and the colonial ruler, ru rulers had it uh, because uh, of the world wars. They needed uh, Official Secrets Act 
during the two wars, the First World War and the Second World War. And so the norm took root that, uh, you know, the official information is key to the national security and state interests. And as we all know, the steel frame or the bureaucracy or the system that we inherited in independent India was a colonial legacy. And so the logic that the official information is key to national security and state interests actually carried on. And so in 1951, Official Secrets Act was just uh, uh, amended by merely removing all the references to Great Britain and replacing it with India. Uh, And in 1967, it actually was amended to an even stronger version um, uh, by uh, uh, kind of redefining relevant sections of the act uh, of making, uh, you know, uh, the offense of receiving and giving information as a non-bailable offense, that all official uh, all official information is with the public authorities is confidential and secret, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and if you would uh, go back to the debate which happened in the parliament when the 1967 uh, amendment was introduced, uh, then Home Minister uh, Vidya Charan Shukl actually uh, states this very clearly in the statement of objects and reasons. And so we kind of inherited it, and not only inherited it, kind of made it stronger. And this is what Paul Pearson calls, uh, you know, the locking in effect of a norm. So the norm kind of got locked in at all the systemic levels. But, you know, one of the central points of the book, in fact, the central thesis of the book, is that the transparency movement that evolved over time really did develop from within the state itself, right? And so I think that immediately begs the question, how did a counter movement against vested interests of the state emerge from within the state, right? I mean, I think to many people that that might sound counterintuitive. How did it evolve? Well, I think uh, there were two sources to it. Uh, The first source were uh, the government reports themselves. You know, the government of India constituted a number of committees uh, right after independence, uh, you know, for the appraisal of public administration, uh, for the probity of public life, um, uh, corruption, anti-corruption committees. uh, And all these, all the reports of these committees right since independence actually uh, aired their views about uh, the norm of openness, that there should be, uh, the government affairs should be more open. And that's why I say that it was from within the state. But another important source, which was actually very significant, was this demand from the opposition parties from within the parliament uh, that, you know, they should also have access to confidential information or information which is secret because and the root cause for this demand was that the privilege of exclusive exclusive privilege of accessing uh, information from within the state uh, was just with the ruling party and so for I, you know i've given this instance in the book that in 1965 there was a ruling of the speaker which allowed uh, all the parliamentarians to actually quote uh, from confidential reports and uh, this was this ruling was actually triggered by the opposition demand to quote from the official documents. Uh, And so this is the kind of a long-drawn idea uh, which emerged from within the state. Um, And and, and that's that's the kind of picture, that's the cognitive map of the state that I try to kind of capture in this book. 
But, you know, you, you cite the Janta Party government that was in power for a brief period following the emergency, you know, 1977 to 79, as a kind of inflection point in the fight for openness, right? Now, obviously, uh, the Janta government, you know, was a group of political actors that uh, had been at the receiving end of Indira Gandhi's emergency. And so they had their own selfish interests in trying to pry open the state. But what struck me in reading your book is that... Uh, is the question of why they didn't do even more as a kind of counter movement um, to undo the kind of entrenched secretive methods of, of, of government working. You know, can we really say this was a, a turning point? What, what, what defines it as such? Um, Janta Party, uh, in my view, was, uh, was a turning point, but I, I, I would treat it like a link period in the sense that... Uh, you know, in the phase that I just talked about, where there were opposition demands, uh, there were sporadic reports uh, from within the government which expressed uh, the idea of openness. Um, Janta Party kind of emerged from that, the, the thinking within Janta Party kind of emerged from that political milieu, that political context. Uh, and so I would kind of regard it as something which is of a link period. So, for instance, uh, you know, uh, then Home Minister uh, Charan Singh during the Janta Party constituted a committee uh, to examine the possibility of amending the Official Secrets Act and giving some kind of uh, some kind of legislation or some kind of ordinance to give uh, citizens access to information. Uh, and this kind of shot down by the bureaucracy. Uh, and obviously so, because, you know, the, all the officials of this committee uh, uh, were from uh, the departments and the ministries. So, for instance, there were members from the Cabinet Secretariat, Ministry of Finance, Ministry of Defense, Ministry of Home, and they, they kind of uh, concluded that there is no need to amend the Official Secrets Act. Um, but what has happened during Janta Party is that it provides kind of a link period from the period when the ideas were nascent uh, to, the, to the period when post-Janta Party period, when, you know, ideas which were on the periphery actually slowly, gradually started moving to the policy center stage. So right after Janta Party, you see this uh, hectic activity around demanding access to information. So there were uh, reports of the government which articulated right to know. Um, uh, you know, there were even private members' bills in the parliament, uh, tabled in 1983-84, called Freedom of Information Bill. Uh, all this can be linked back to Janta Party. And what was happening within Janta Party can be linked back to the 1965 ruling of the Speaker, which I just talked about. Um, so, so whenever the opposition came to power, uh, the whole movement kind of started uh, gaining traction. It kind of gave it, gave it a new kind of uh, fresh momentum, as it were. You know, in the 80s and 90s, just to kind of continue the story a little bit, the transparency movement you know, continues to gather strength. At the same time, there are people inside of the state who want to institutionalize secrecy further, right? They're kind of doubling down, their backs are against the wall. You call this process of institutional change that we witness, quote unquote, layering. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, for the kind of lay person, you know, what does this mean? How does it actually work? Because this is a fundamental part of your story. Um, so there are two connected arguments. Uh, I call it a layered tipping point. Uh, so the layering happens when a nascent norm, a norm which is very rudimentary, uh, just an idea, 
kind of emerges on the fringes of a nested norm or a norm which is already locked in at all the systemic levels and kind of gradually moves to the center stage uh, on the top of the nested norm, eventually displacing the nested norm, which is what has happened in RTI. But a related, uh, related explanation to this is that this was a tipping point model in the sense that, uh, you know, there are three characteristics to it. The first is that uh, there was a slow-moving, incremental, endogenous political power of ideas, which was moving slowly from within the state. Uh, second, uh, what the layered tipping point is uh, doing is, for me, is that is it, it is able, it is enabling me to kind of delineate small interlinked changes, which has evolved over time, right? And the ideas have gained enough critical mass uh, to tip the system over. It kind of laid out the nested norm of secrecy. Um, and why I call it layering is that you can clearly see that this has happened in two layers, which I call two phases. From 1947 to 1989, these ideas on openness are on the periphery. They're nascent ideas. They are still rudimentary, even though they're gaining traction. Uh, they are, but they're still in the realm of opposition politics. It is the opposition parties which are demanding it. It has not kind of gained traction within the state thinking. But in my second layer, you see the weight of earlier ideas has actually gained momentum, uh, enough critical mass, so to speak. And so from the National Front government in 1989, you see that, uh, you know, the ideas which were on the periphery, the nascent ideas, are part of the mainstream politics. You know, all the political parties are uh, promising a right uh, to information or freedom of information in their election manifestos. Uh, it is not only a political commitment like Janta Party, but the policy processes have also started kickstarting within the state. Um, surprisingly, uh, between 1991 and 96, you see a hiatus of activity around these uh, demands. Is the hiatus because of political uh, shocks like economic liberalization and other issues? You know, and that's a puzzle, Milan, because you would, you would, uh, you would. You would believe, uh, you would think that in the heyday of economic reforms, the govern, well, government would be actually more forthcoming right. uh, to actually institutionalize transparency and accountability about the government affairs. And yet, what happened in 1996, sorry, 1994, was that they, um, the, the minority government and the Nursi Marao actually went ahead and amended something called Manual of Department Security Instructions. Which classifies and declassifies, which actually classifies information according to the categories of secret being top secret and confidential. Um, and my hunch is that uh, since Congress was the longest ruling party, right. it was still hesitant in buying that idea. So the uptake of idea has not, hap not happened. Whereas National Front government and the United Front government, which followed Congress party, um, were more open to it because, you know, they were more or less like uh, the opposition gaining power at the center. But what I find so interesting is that, you know, the right to information bill finally gets passed in parliament at the center in 2005. But you note that even as politicians were fighting over this legislation in the Capitol, the norm of greater transparency was taking root at the subnational level, at the level of India states, right? So I think you, you have this nice chart where you showed Tamil Nadu, I believe, was the first state to pass its own RTI Act back in 1997. 
to what extent was the center actually learning from experiments that the states were already launching, albeit on a much smaller scale, in their own backyards? You know, was there this process of kind of aggregation and learning and then the center was kind of taking this into account? Milan, there's always a point in the book uh, where, uh, you know, the author Orwell always wishes that uh, he should have dug more. <laughs> apparently, um, apparently, in you know, this is... Uh, this is the section where I uh, wish I could have dug more. I could have found more evidence to ascertain why these ordinances and state right to information acts were actually promulgated at the subnational level. At least the papers at uh, the central level don't indicate that there was any kind of norm diffusion which was happening from the subnational to the national level. Um, but, you know, uh, I should point out uh, two important things that there was a chief minister's conference in 1997, which kind of uh, committed collectively, unanimously to, uh, you know, enact a right to information or access to information. Um, and it was just after this 1997 chief minister's conference that you see the Maladu, Goa, and all these other acts, state-level acts being uh, promulgated. Um, and there were small, uh, there were small initiatives independently taken at the subnational level. So, for instance, Harshmandal, uh, who was uh, uh, who was an IES posted in the Bilaspur division of Madhya Pradesh at that point of time, had given the citizens of Bilaspur uh, the right to uh, uh, the right or access to information uh, to the public distribution system or the official records with the public distribution system. Um, and what? And this is for things like food rations and so on. Food, yes. This is this is what this was the information about the food rations, ration card, and so on and so forth. And so what Harshmander did was Harshmander was sharing it with at one level with the activists who were busy uh, in Rajasthan, and he was also sharing it within the state, uh, contributing to the discourse which was happening within the state. So, for instance. What, uh, for instance, the order of Harshmandar was shared with the HD Shori Committee, which was uh, constituted by the United Front government to examine the possibility of promulgating right to information. Mm -hmm. So this was the kind of uh, backstory to this whole, uh, uh, you know, state level uh, ordinances and right to information acts. I want to circle back to something that you talked about at the very beginning, which is, you know, I think many scholars, analysts who have looked at the RTI Act have attributed its success and its eventual passage in 2005 to civil society pressure. You know, you mentioned a group like the MKSS, uh, a pioneering uh, advocacy uh, information movement based in Rajasthan, you know, who applied intense pressure over a period of years for the to state to kind of open up. Your argument is somewhat different, right? Is that the passage of the RTI was not principally a result of this kind of bottom-up civil society mobilization. You know, what have other analysts gotten wrong? Or, or you know, wh why why has that role, I guess you could say, been overstated? You know, at the at the very outset, you know, I sh there's a disclaimer. I don't, I acknowledge the role of, a social, of the social network. Um, but, you know, there's a methodological... Uh, difference with uh, the social movement argument. Um, the methodological difference is that, uh, you know, the point of departure. Uh, as I said earlier, that the norm of secrecy can be traced back to the Official Secrets Act. And my argument is that, you know, the norm, since the norm of secrecy can be traced back to the 1947 or 1951, 
to the official secrets act the norm of openness or the ideas of openness have to be seen in that context have to actually go back to that point of departure uh and as a result what has happened is that in the book i was able to kind of bring in new historical evidence which was overlooked by the mainstream literature for instance this private members bill by gc bhattacharya which was tabled in the parliament in 1983 uh is not talked about in any mainstream narrative or this 1965 uh ruling by the speaker uh right um and so if you redefine the point of departure it kind of enables you to bring in new historical evidence and uh and i think if you if you are tracing an institutional path you have to appropriately define the point of departure and this is what this uh, kind of book uh, brings in uh, the second important point which i should mention melin is uh, the nature of social movement itself uh you know it's very easy to call it social movement but i have kind of a nuanced view on this because this was a network which did not only have social movement actors they had actors from uh, the legal uh, you know the legal fraternity they had journalists they had academicians so i call it uh, an epistemic network where each node of this network came in with their each unique epistemic quality um and so uh, you know um the linkages were not interest based the linkages were more ideational it was ideas around openness which kind of bound them bound them together and so i call them epistemic network another question that people often raise or i should say statement they often make is that the influence of western countries western democracies like the united states and the united kingdom uh also played a pivotal role right i think a lot of people as shorthand say India passed this legislation which was modeled after the United States Freedom of Information Act which was, of course is a decades old act um to what extent did India and in in people within the state outside of the state uh the people who were really involved in in pushing for this change look to the United States or others as a source of inspiration yeah that's another aspect which is actually overlooked in the mainstream literature mill uh you know the mainstream literature suggests that the demand was from bottom up Uh, it was a grassroots movement and uh when i see the government documents uh the primary documents that i've been able to access uh by the way uh it was through rti that you were i was able to access them uh you know if i would have been found in possession of these documents uh before rti i would probably be in jail uh but right so in your case rti is the subject of the book and the means of actually doing the book absolutely. itself um and so um you know there are two arguments to uh the whole global norm story and the first argument that i make is there was a demonstrative impact of what was happening elsewhere what existed elsewhere on the ongoing domestic discourse uh so uh, united states as a mature democracy has done it uh sweden has done it long time back um and so okay so let us look at their laws uh, what do their laws tell us about uh, so there was a demonstrative impact and so the advocates of uh the freedom of information advocates of openness uh, at the domestic level often cited these laws right uh, the second thing which was happening was norm localization where uh, you know uh, the actual law from united states the us foi law or uh, the uk law or the new zealand australia law uh, specific clauses of these law were being borrowed and drawn upon but not as passive learners uh, but they were localized according to the local needs this is what 
Amitavacharya calls uh, norm localization. And so this is what is happening uh, with the global norms. But surprisingly, they are in conjunction with the domestic discourse. So as the ideas on openness were at the nascent stage, at the periphery in the first phase, so were the global norms. But as the state, as the ideas of openness found some traction within the state thinking, um, the, the uh, global norms found traction within the state thinking as well. Your book, and you're very clear about this up front, is really focused on how right to information came to be, as opposed to kind of what happened after it passed, its implementation. However, since you have studied this so closely, and I know you've also studied the implementation, I'm wondering if you could kind of bring us up to speed. If you go from the paper on which the law is written to how it's actually practiced on the ground, how well has this piece of legislation actually performed? Has it lived up to the promise that so many of its proponents had laid out for us, you know, uh, throughout this period? Well, Millen's case of glass half full, like any other law in India. Um, and I think if you see RTI as a continuum, the one end of the continuum are the information givers and the other end are the information seekers. And surely, uh, you know, the space between these two, con two, two, uh, two continuum, two ends of the continuum is uh, the new space of accountability. Uh, but what has happened is that, uh, you know, RTI as it is implemented have been hobbled with some challenges. So there is reluctance on the part of the state to part with information. There are pendencies and delays. Uh, the information commissioners, the, uh, the, the post for information commissioners are vacant. Uh, there's also a negative view of the RTI users. But despite this, RTI has been used by many and even people who belong to uh, uh, the less privileged section of the societies. Uh, so in the book, I start with this uh, uh, fascinating story of RTI used by a rickshaw puller in the poor state of uh, eastern state of India called Bihar, where he used uh, right to information to get services uh, from the state. Uh, you know, but there are core RTI users whom I call agents of accountability, and there's a lot of pushback, despite the reluctance from the state to seek accountability from the state. And I call these uh, call these RTI users agents of accountability, uh, who are the new kind of agents of accountability who seek uh, through RTI and through the use of RTI uh, accountability from the state. I want to end by asking you about where things go from here. You know, at the very tail end of the book, you point out that there have been recent amendments to the RTA Act uh, enacted and passed in parliament by the present NDA government. Uh, these have been described by many observers as detrimental to the overall cause of transparency. Why are these, in your view, potentially damaging to the cause of openness? I think it's what 2019 amendments are doing is it's taking away the autonomy of the regulators. So essentially by controlling the tenure of the information commissioners and the emoluments of the information commissioners, um, it is taking away the autonomy of the information commissioners. And it is a quasi-judicial position where they have to actually rule against the state itself. Uh, and so it's kind of taking away the autonomy. Um, and so the bite that RTI has will be blunted with this amend amendment for sure. But it is not the first time that any government has attempted to dilute RTI. Uh, there, has always, there have always been this tendency to uh, you know, put 
former bureaucrats as information commissioners uh, to fill the vacant posts. And surely they will protect their own uh, genus to, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, in comparison to favor the citizens. Uh, and in fact, the previous government had moved its own amendments to dilute the law. It just didn't go through parliament. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and also, it's very closely related to, uh, you know, the current scenario of electoral bonds where, uh, you know, the political parties are just refusing to come under the ambit of uh, right to information. Right. Could I ask you about another actor just in closing, which is the judiciary? You know, the judiciary has been, according to your book, according to many accounts, uh, including to some of my own work on criminality, for instance, a stalwart ally of the transparency movement, right? In fact, you dedicate an entire chapter to your book to exploring how its own views, the judicial thinking, philosophy have evolved on transparency. Today, we are seeing a different judiciary, it seems, uh, largely avoiding tough calls. So whether it's on the electoral bonds question you mentioned, which is still sitting in front of the court, uh, people have complained about the delays over habeas corpus petitions related to the situation in Jammu and Kashmir, a range of other issues, which you know you could argue strike at the heart of the transparency agenda. What do you think has changed? Um, I thought you would never ask me this tricky question, Milan, but uh, you have. Um, <laughs> Feel free uh, to ignore it if you rather not answer it. No, uh, just quickly. Um, I think I think judiciary was an important player, as uh, I've you know, as you have already mentioned. I've devoted the whole chapter to it, um, and surely the interpretation of constitution was very important in this regard. Where Article Nineteen One A of the Indian Constitution, which grants citizens fundamental right of freedom of expression and speech, uh, was. Uh, Interpreted as, interpreted as inherently containing right to know, that how can you have freedom of expression and speech unless you have knowledge about uh, some information, right? Um, but this is not to claim that the journey of judicial verdicts or the journey of constitutional interpretation has been a linear journey. Uh, and there have been uh, kind of an ups and downs. And right at the peak of uh, emergency, there was this uh, famous uh, case called the habeas corpus case or ADM Jabalpur case, uh, which was, uh, you know, the Supreme Court bench actually upheld uh, the presidential rules rule to detain citizens. And except for one single dissent by Justice Khanna, uh, all, the, all the bench actually ruled in favor of the government. Uh, and surprisingly, Justice P.B. Sawant, who, was, who is known as this uh, champion of uh, freedom of information, uh, was the one who was part of this ruling. And later on, uh, in one of the interviews, uh, he actually conceded in 2012 that political ideologies are bound to color the judgments. Uh, and so similar things are happening now, where, uh, you know, judiciary is uh, being captured as an institution. It is losing its autonomy. Uh, but Milan, uh, as a social scientist, I... Uh, I try to avoid examining the moving targets. Uh, I, I try to kind of look at some of the things, but this is not something new which has happened. This is something, uh, the journey of judiciary and the constitutional interpretation has not been a linear journey, so to speak. I mean, I think one of the most interesting aspects of the book, uh, j just to build on what you mentioned, is, right, you have these kind of crests and waves, right, these kind of peaks and valleys in terms of the transparency movement where you think you've reached a potential tipping point and, in fact, then things go in the opposite direction. You achieve a breakthrough and then there's a backlash, right? And so if, far from being linear, it's kind of this two steps forward, one step backward. Um, 
one final thing before I let you go. The model of institutional change that you sketch out in this book, I, you know, is totally compelling when you read it. I wonder to what extent can it be expanded to other issues, right? So the logic that we discussed about norms emerging from within the state, about layering, about um, path dependency, right? All these issues. Can it inform our understanding of other major changes which have been enacted or, or other changes which have not been enacted in the post-independence era? Yeah. Uh, you know, the ups and downs that you were talking about in the book somewhere I've used this, uh, the, you know, to capture this pattern, I've used the term ideational churning. There was a churning which was happening within the state. And, you know, after the promulgation of RTI, similar kind of churning is taking place at the ground level between the nested norm of secrecy and the norm of openness. Whether this kind of model, slow-moving, gradual change, can be extended to explain uh, other changes, other examples or other cases of changes in the policy paradigms, uh, uh, you know, depends on the empirical material. I mean, there are two ways to think about it. Uh, one is, uh, one is uh, this thinking that there's a critical juncture which opens up a short window of opportunity uh, to alter the institutional path or this another view which is actually outlined in this view uh, outlined in this book which uh, kind of talks about the slow moving gradual incremental change and i think in a complex country in india uh, you know the changes which are long lasting have always been this these gradual incremental changes you know for example uh, you know the 1991 economic reforms if at all you can call it an institutional change, was actually not a sudden change in 1991. Surely there was a window of opportunity, but you know the macro micro changes started have, taking place uh, minutely within the state right since the 1970s. Um, and so uh, you know it, the lesson that we can learn from RTI and the RTI story about this slow-moving gradual change is that in a complex democracy like India, under various pulls and pressures social and political pressures, economic pressures, I think gradualism works. And I'm kind of just opposing it to some of the recent bills which have been passed in the parliament, uh, where there have been kind of no debate uh, or no uh, kind of churning which has taken place from within the state. Um, and so I think to capture uh, the Indian changes in the Indian policy, policy landscape, you have to have, to have a long durée view about uptake of ideas, uh, about how ideas take shape within the state and change the state thinking around the issue. My guest on the show today is Himanshu Jha. He is on the faculty of the Department of Political Science at the South Asia Institute in Heidelberg University in Germany. He's the author of a brand new book titled Capturing Institutional Change, The Case of the Right to Information Act. Himanshu, thanks so much. Congrats on the book and thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you, Milan. Pleasure talking to you. Grant Thamasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting producing platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we referenced on this week's episode, visit our website, granthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Jonathan Kay, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. 
स्मार्ट कास्ट